What does Shakespeare's Tempest mean to you? If you see yourself as Miranda or Prospero, maybe it's one thing. If you're Stefano, it's something else. But what if you see yourself as the great-great-granddaughter of Caliban? What does it mean then? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. That question about Caliban is at the center of a new play by playwright and director Madeline Syed. It's called Where We Belong. When Madeline staged it in 2019, she became the first Native American playwright to have her work performed at Shakespeare's Globe. Now she's produced a new version that's being made available by DC's Woolly Mammoth Theater in association with the Folger starting June 14th. Madeline is Mohegan, and that heritage is central to where we belong. She's the great-grandniece of former Mohegan medicine woman Gladys Tantaquidgen, who founded Connecticut's Tantaquidgen Indian Museum in 1931. Madeline's mother, medicine woman Melissa Tantaquidgen Sobel, fought to reestablish Mohegan tribal status in the 1970s. But Madeline's play is also about Shakespeare. Madeline once intended to get a PhD in Shakespeare studies, and the play spends a lot of its time and energy explaining all the reasons why that didn't happen. Within this Shakespeare-Mohegan nexus, Where We Belong is a play about language, about colonization, decolonization, erasure, and family. Madeline Syette joined us from an apartment in downtown DC where she was rehearsing the play for a podcast we call Farewell, Master, Farewell, Farewell. In the States, I direct plays. As a Native person, I promote Native stories. In the UK, I study Shakespeare. My area of research is the relationship between the indigenous peoples of America and Shakespeare's plays. Today's story isn't about Shakespeare, though. It's not a traditional Mohegan story either. Today's story is how I became a bird. Madeline is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. So Maddie, is the protagonist you? I, I never want to assume. Uh, is it you or is it a character that you've created for this play? No, it is 100% me, which is actually very strange in the rehearsal process because there's this fine line between what is directed and what is like, I don't, I can't really act that because, you know, like it's actually my life. Um, so it's a really interesting process and in that originally it was never supposed to be a play. It was me processing some things that I was going through. And so, yeah, it's weird to even hear like the protagonist, right? In a sentence. Because it's right. Like, uh, I'm yes. just going to throw that word out. It now. is, it, it is in fact just me. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Achokais. I am a Mohegan. Those are the first words I was taught to say in Mohegan. And I was taught to introduce myself that way everywhere, to make sure Mohegan is always being spoken somewhere, that it's never really a dead language, that our ancestors still hear it every so often and you remember the ground on which you're standing. I want to hone in right on the Shakespeare, and it sounds like then from the play that you came to Shakespeare early. And it, and it also sounds like Shakespeare, or maybe it was just theater, was a refuge for you from what was going on in your life, as it is for so many people. So what were you escaping from? 
so I, yeah, I did come to Shakespeare very young. Uh, my mom started taking me to see outdoor Shakespeare productions when I was seven years old. And so I read the complete works when I was seven. I mean, I just really didn't understand how to make sense out of the space I was in between cultures as a kid. My parents, they come from different cultures and are already divorced at this point. So Thanksgiving traditionally consists of two very separate meals to symbolize the division in my family. We do lunch with my mom's family for Thanksgiving number one, the one with natives, and dinner with my dad's family for Thanksgiving number two, the one with Jews. There was this constant tension where I always felt like there was something wrong with me um, in some way, shape, or form. And at the time, I felt like whenever I could be someone else, that was just so much easier than trying to process whatever was, you know, happening in real life. I take comfort in knowing no matter how much trouble I'm caught in, I can escape to Shakespeare rehearsal and be someone else. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name and I'll no longer be a Capulet. You know, normal teen stuff. And in Shakespeare, I don't have to worry about making a mistake or saying the wrong thing. It's already written. I just have to speak what's been handed to me. And it sounds really good and makes people think that I'm charming and funny and smart. When I speak Shakespeare, people listen. So teen me splits my time between performing for a local Shakespeare company and working for my tribe. Totally understandable. And also your mother was a real activist and your whole family mm -hmm. was involved in activism. Tell us about that because you say in the play that to be native in Connecticut is basically to be told every day you don't exist and decide whether or not today's a day it's worth fighting about. As a kid, my mom or other Mohegans would show up at my school to intervene and make sure our history was being taught correctly. But now, as a teenager, my mom is constantly reminding me it's now my responsibility to fix things. Yeah, so it's interesting even hearing the word activist, right? Because, like, I would have never thought about that. Like, in my mind, it's just sort of, like, what it is to be a Native person. Even to exist is, like, revolutionary. But I suppose it would be. Like, my mom um, worked very hard when I was a kid toward our federal recognition. My Mohegan Wolf family was really all about staying put. Like, they wouldn't leave. Like, at all. As elders, my Uncle Tom and Aunt Gladdie stopped leaving home altogether. They were terrified that if they left, they might die somewhere other than on Mohegan Hill. Which, like, let me be clear to my family, is the worst thing that could happen. Our medicine relies on being home. Being where our ancestors can look after us. Uh, my Aunt Gladys founded Tanaquich Indian Museum with her brother and father, where, you know, which was a space in which my family was very passionate about educating other people about our customs and about our ways. And so it was never like, this is activism. It was like, if we are to survive, this is necessary. So it's just an interesting framework to even think about as activism, because it's like, if someone is telling you every day you don't exist, do you just accept that you don't exist? Or do you say, actually, I am in fact here? In order to talk about indigenous Shakespeare's though, we have to go back to how Shakespeare got to America, to indigenous peoples. We need to talk about erasure, cultural genocide, and assimilationist education initiatives in America designed to eradicate indigenous cultures and replace them. Already we're into that d divide because I'm thinking that my producer, uh, Richard Paul, grew up in Connecticut mm -hmm. and, and he told me that growing up as a kid in mm -hmm. his part of the state, no one knew there were Native people in Connecticut. It's, it's crazy. They do these studies every so often about how many people in America still think Native Americans are alive. 
And it's astonishing how many people just don't believe we exist. But when they do, it's usually they think of Lakota, they think of Navajo, they think of, you know, folks out in different parts of the country. They don't don't think about the Northeast. Yeah. They think basically about cowboys and Indians. They think about, yeah, well, they think because, I mean, if you think about the way that we're trained to think about Native people in America, I mean, America's main art form is film. Um, So so what people have been taught is that uh, not only... Are we something to be removed so that the white man can succeed, but also that we are far in the West? And there's a lot of academic writing on that, on the fact that Westerns are not Easterns is no accident. Aunt Gladys, medicine woman Gladys Tanaquidgen, was a living legend. She founded Tanaquidgen Indian Museum at the height of the Great Depression with her brother and father on the idea, it's hard to hate someone you know a lot about. Together, they protected our stories and other sacred relations like pipes and baskets within the museum, where it was warm and dusty and always smelled like good medicine. But you see... Part of the reason the museum ended up coming into the play was this contrast between Tanaquitchen Indian Museum and the British Museum. And folks within the development process wanting to know more about that, like what my expectation would be. And I was like, oh, it's actually very specific because I was raised in an environment where I was raised giving tours in a museum. But Tanaquidgen Museum was originally called Tanaquidgen Lodge. And the idea of it as a lodge was because it was a place where, where people and spirits gather. It's not a museum where there's boxes and cases. And, and it's a little bit more, you know, in order to preserve some of the items, it's a little bit more formal now than it was when I was a kid. But when I was growing up, it was very much like a an old stone building filled with different relations and everything in that space came there by good medicine, right? There was nothing that was taken, nothing that was stolen, nothing that was, it was all either something that was ours or something that was gifted. And they were all, and all, all of the relatives in that space are treated as if they are alive, right? And the stories are, are, are handled in that way. Whereas, you know, you have spaces like the British Museum where you're basically celebrating a history of violence. An academic has asked me to meet up at the British Museum He wants to know my thoughts on the North American section, the Native American exhibit. On the way in, we stop through the British section, a celebration of the height of empire. He gestures enthusiastically. Here's the shield of the first Aborigine killed when Cook arrived in Australia. And the the living spirits within objects in those spaces. um, I mean, most people don't understand that indigenous peoples in a variety of native nations have a very different relationship to what is animate and what is inanimate. Yes, we have a ton of Maori trophy heads. Recently, a Maori artist wanted them displayed under a structure he built so that we could show the world what we had done. I thought it was very exciting. Museum didn't go for it naturally. Well, I'm thinking of the whole scene in your play where you go to a museum and and a a museum curator is talking about all of the uh, indigenous peoples in terms of their corpses, really. And you're just horrified. Um, And this is the kind of experience we grew up with, going to see Native Americans in dioramas in the Natural History Museum. Here we go, North American section. I step back, giving the sacred relations space. How did these get here? I ask, looking at a mash of mislabeled indigenous artworks like varying nations crowded into a rail car, a continent facing genocide over hundreds and hundreds of years, wide spanses of geography thrown together in cases without specific acknowledgement. Oh, they take legally acquired very seriously. 
And there's two levels to that. There's level one. For native people, it's horrifying even for the things that non-natives would consider objects to be there, like sacred items that actually have living spirits attached to them that are not physical human corpses. And there are, there are words to describe things that we have in indigenous languages that are specifically for, you know, animate beings that are not people. But, but English doesn't have those words. And then in addition to that, that mentality that they have about those items is connected to the fact that then, oh, when something's a corpse and not a person, it's also an object. And so this idea that everything in a museum is an object as opposed to everything in a museum is alive are two very different ways of thinking. Everyone freaked out when they thought Shakespeare's head might be missing, but no one cares how many native skulls sit in boxes unlabeled. I'm sorry, I have nothing to offer the spirits crowding this building mashed up against friends, enemies, strangers who don't understand them, all yearning to go home. I'm scared to close my eyes and listen to the howling and pain around me. Shh. I certainly didn't bring enough tobacco. I want to get back to when you were a kid because I, mm-hmm. I know I was this kind of mom where I would <laughs> tell my kids to go in and if they heard something in history class or any, anything at school, to speak up and say, no, it's not like this. And in the play, you have a, a scene where your mother's telling you. So on those days when my mom makes sure I go and tell my teachers to their face that I will not be handing in their assignment on Manifest Destiny from the settler's perspective but will in fact be writing a paper on wounded knee so they learn something. So what was that like for you to be to be that that kid? Uh, yeah, it was very stressful. Um, <laughs> I, I was also, I was very shy as a kid. Um, and I, I, I still don't handle tension very well. It's interesting because like, I feel like I'm in tension all the time now, but I... Well, really, I, this um, play is doing that. I mean, yeah, right? Exactly uh, that. <laughs> uh, but, uh... I was very shy and I also had a lot of anxiety as a kid. Like I was very conflict avoidant is the easiest way to put it. Um, and so, and so yes, like I still knew enough to come home and be like, mom, uh, they're having us write a, like I knew enough to know it was wrong and I didn't want to do it. But I, but like, you know, if I came home and said that to my mom and I said, well, I don't want to talk to my teacher. (laughs) She would be, like, she would be livid. And then, you know, of course, she wasn't going to talk to the teacher. I was going to talk to the teacher because if I didn't learn that I was supposed to be the one talking to the teacher in that instance, right, then how was I going to learn anything about what kind of a person I should be? Well, I can really feel the squeeze. Yeah. So what did your mother then think of your interest in Shakespeare, given all that? So you're acting white. Are you a white person now? No, mom, this is your responsibility. You know that. Did your ancestors sacrifice for nothing? So to be honest, my the play is a little skewed in terms of narrative construction. The one thing that is not true in the play, spoiler, is that my mom was never actually like anti-Shakespeare in any way. I, I sort of composited other Native people's responses to me and Shakespeare into my mom in order to to have it be a little bit more consistent. All right, I'm going to the UK to study Shakespeare. But as the words leave my lips, my mom shoots back, why? Do you want to be white? No, no, I don't want to be white. I just want to be a part of something I'm good at. Shakespeare isn't only for white people. 
but you want to study a white man. No, no, I am not studying the man, the white man. I am studying the ongoing life of his work. And you have a zit. See, this is because you want to study a white man. It's bad medicine. Oh, so but she my, didn't say things like, you want to study a white man? <laughs> no, but other people did. That dialogue is a true dialogue. It just wasn't dialogue from my mom. Well, I had that dialogue. literally. Yeah, yeah. It is great dialogue because I love when she says, you know, you want to study a white man and you have a zit. See, this yeah. is because well, the and, you want and to you study have a, a white man. It's bad yeah. medicine. And you have a zit is also fr is actually from my mom. That is from my mom. Oh, but the <laughs> so anytime you did something wrong or against your your heritage, yeah, it was bad medicine. Yeah, it was bad medicine. And then also, if I had a zit, it was probably because I had done something wrong. Yeah. Oh my god! What yeah. a thing to live with. Yeah. What did you do to deserve this zit? Right. What did you do to deserve this zit? <laughs> well, I mean, I should say. And another, this is another spoiler alert. The play is a journey of viewing Shakespeare one way to viewing Shakespeare very differently mm -hmm. um, or experiencing Shakespeare very different, differently as you evolve. So in the beginning, for you, it sounds like Shakespeare was this very real passport or a ticket to belonging. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, when you're, when you're a kid and somebody says you're good at something, it's like, Oh my God, right? You're like, that's the thing. I'm good at that thing. When I do it, people respond to it. Um, I will have a place where I belong. I'll have like a role, you know, within sort of the community. But I never really questioned as a kid the fact that while there were all of these opportunities to perform Shakespeare, there were no opportunities at that point in time to learn my Mohegan language and what that said about society and what was being valued and what was not being valued, you know? Um, and so that's really complicated looking back. And, it, and I tried to build in, it's, it's hard, right, to look back and try and build in a journey, but I tried to build in as much of that journey into the story as I could, the sort of reckoning with... Um, there's like being inside of Shakespeare as a character, there's Shakespeare's plays, there's there's Shakespeare the play, right? And there's Shakespeare the system and all of these things are so different. Yeah. And everything kind of gets lumped together as like Shakespeare, you know? But but they're they're really very different things. Um, we, we have so many people come on this podcast and they say, oh, mm -hmm. Shakespeare is your ticket. The moment mm -hmm. you say, mm -hmm. oh, I want to do this then everybody's on board. This is this is the universe. Shakespeare's the universal yeah. passport, universal language. I can make people laugh and love me and think I'm clever simply by speaking these words. People love the characters in these plays. It's, it is a ticket. It is a passport. Not because it's universal, but because of its role in colonialism. Shakespeare is required in the American Common Core. Native writers are not, you know? Everyone has a certain familiarity with Shakespeare, not just because everyone loves Shakespeare. Lots of people have familiarity with Shakespeare who don't actually like Shakespeare, right? But everyone has a familiarity with it because of the way that it's in the education system. And people don't have a familiarity with things that are not in the education system in that way. And so to say that it's, it's universal is to ignore the actual context of the way that it's operating in society. The thing, one of the things that I'm really fighting against within the piece is this universality argument because I heard so much of it, right? Shakespeare's universal, Shakespeare's universal. It's like, well, actually, he's not, but we're making, we're trying to make him that because he's what we're receiving and have to process ourselves through. And on the level of language, it gets really complicated too because, among other things, in loving Shakespeare, you do love the language, you say in the play, and yet your own 
Monhegan language was taken from you. And as you write in the play, that there are no more fluent speakers of your language. And, and you speculate at one point, maybe if I can just get back to Shakespeare, I'll have the language I need. So what did you mean by that? And what does it mean to you to be deprived of your mother tongue? And what were you seeking in Shakespeare to, to I don't know, to bridge that rift? Yeah, I mean, so early on in my journey, prior to sort of processing some of the more complex systemic issues, um, I really found that poetic form offered something that other forms did not, like when dealing with English. And the way that Shakespeare's texts leave space, the way that they have open metaphors, there's room for possibility within the text in a way that um, other English language texts don't necessarily carry. And I think that I had at that point successfully found ways to bridge the two. And I also knew that when I bridged the two, people understood the thing that I was trying to explain better. Can you think of an example? Yeah. Here? Yeah, of sure. what you're talking about? So, so when I, so the first show that I directed was a production of The Tempest that centered on the question, what would happen if Caliban could get his language back? I wish others could see what I see. Every time I read it, see a production, I feel they've gotten something horribly wrong. Don't they understand Shakespeare is anti-colonial? That this play is about here, about us about what the world once was and the possibility of what it could be. If this is our only representation in the canon, surely Shakespeare wouldn't want them to do what they've been doing. This island's mine, by Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest from me. And also acknowledging, using it to acknowledge that there are people here. And I actually also set it up as a story of something that happened a long time ago, because the, the, this, in the play, the, the settlers leave the island at the end. What would people learn if Caliban could only get his language back? What would happen if Caliban could get his language back? If, as he moved toward freedom, his language came back to replacing that of his oppressor? If Ariel, the airy spirit, too, was of here, was blackbirds like me, a flock of blackbirds, everywhere and nowhere at once. If their language was my language, and this was a story of something that happened here long ago. After all, in the play, the settlers leave the island at the end. Maybe I can prove Shakespeare wanted the colonists to leave too. So the idea was that the prologue was in Mohegan and the epilogue was in Mohegan. And it's a story of something that happened as if colonialism never actually happened. But this was something, a brief moment in history. Academics love it. Oh yes, they say, this is what the Tempest was always about. I realize the power that comes with showing people a different way of seeing the world. This is clearly what the Tempest was always about. It was it's always weird, about native people in the Northeast, you know? And it made me go like, whoa. Like, I didn't change a word of the text. I just made choices with it. And and it, it kind of gave me this like awareness of like, I could use this to change people's minds about things. But then the tricky thing is, is the expectation, right? The expectation is still racist. I do what I can to promote native theater, make friends, build partnerships with the larger white institutions. Producers start calling. We read your article. We heard about your work. We would love you to do a native version of a classic. No, no, we don't need anything specific. Just native E, you know, generally. Feathers, fringe, some native flair. No, we don't need native performers. We'll just dress them up to look native. And when I was doing my academic research, that was the thing I was really interested and focused on, was this idea of if we apply um, American Indian literary theory to Shakespeare, 
and to Shakespearean performance and indigenous Shakespearean performance, what does that open up? You know, what does that open up in a way that, I mean, like Western literary theory has been applied to native lit forever, you know, but what are we actually like opening up by considering what things could mean in different ways? Even though we know that like he wasn't necessarily thinking that, what does this lens shift in terms of what's possible in the poetry? Right. And in the play, you say it gets you to talking about erasure and cultural genocide mm-hmm. and assimilationist education initiatives. Mm-hmm. And you you end up uh, you personally end up you know, lecturing on all of this. But it sounds like, at least from the play, you run into all sorts of roadblocks because there's a scene where you're talking to uh, academics, I guess, about how Shakespeare was used to assimilate indigenous people and they they keep interrupting and they keep misunderstanding. More hands go up. I thought you were going to talk about native Shakespeare productions. You taught me, taught me. I am, uh, but the context is key. Uh, is this is this straight out of your experience? Yeah, it's that weird thing of people want the simple answer a lot of the time, especially when it comes to Shakespeare, um, which is so frustrating to me because I, I think as someone who is actually a Shakespearean, right, who's actually spent so much time thinking about and grappling with these texts and their context and history, the idea that Shakespeare is supposed to just be like, boop, boop, Shakespeare is like a good pill that makes you better, you know, is um, <laughs> is re- so ridiculous. And also I feel like so insulting to the playwright, to be 100% honest. The exciting productions in indigenous languages in the early 2000s, they come out of language reclamation movements. You don't have a language reclamation movement without a language removal process. But you love Shakespeare, yes? You taught me language and. I do, I do. But that doesn't mean that the original texts aren't sexist and racist and that the work isn't later used as a tool of colonialism. Well, what kind of things did they say then that reflected that? It's the idea that it's like, well, no matter what, I have to love Shakespeare, right? The whole point should always be to make everyone love Shakespeare because we love Shakespeare. How do we make people love him the way that we do? And my profit on it is. You don't have to do that. He's not intrinsically superior. People are allowed to love other things. I wrote an article recently for HowlRound on interrogating the Shakespeare system, and I have never had more trolls in my entire life, people being like, she's trying to cancel Shakespeare. And I'm like, I'm literally a Shakespeare. I'm not trying to cancel Shakespeare. I'm just saying that we should grapple with the things in the text. And that idea to some people not the people actually running Shakespeare theaters for the most part. Most of us are starting to, you know, really engage with that. But a lot of people um, who have been taught for some reason that Shakespeare is supposed to be this like universal magic thing that just solves everything and brings us all together really can't accept that it's not just perfect. And it's so ridiculous because anyone who loves Shakespeare doesn't think that all of his plays are perfect. No one's like, oh my God, I love every single one of Shakespeare's plays, right? So it's just a very bizarre cultural consciousness that exists around this playwright and his work. (laughs) I mean, is this why you gave up your PhD program? Uh, Giving up my PhD program is really, it's funny, a friend, uh, a cousin of mine who is considering leaving a program recently asked me why I left my program. And she didn't believe that it had actually been exactly what happens in the play. But it was exactly what happened in the play. It was, I am... Well, I don't know that I should give that away, but basically it was a culmination of things and it was a very simple moment where it was a question between, do I want to be a part of this system Mm -hmm. or do I want to go back to working with living people to try and make change that way? And also just honestly, realistically within academia, 
you know, I could have kept working on that book and it would have been published in five years and then someone might have read it. But if I, if I, if I write a bunch of thing, Mm -hmm. right, it it just takes so long and it wouldn't be for the people who I actually care about. And so that's ultimately what it came down to. Not because I don't believe in academia, not because I don't believe someone should write that book, but because I was like, this is not actually the best investment of my time and energy. And I'm basically banging my head against a wall right now because I'm trying to get people who fundamentally probably will never be able to understand the ideas that I'm trying to explain to understand the ideas that I'm trying to explain when I could just be doing the work with my people back on the other continent, and it would actually be so much more straightforward. So where does this leave you with Shakespeare now then? Because the play ends with lines in what I assume is Mohegan language, Mm -hmm. as if you or the main character in the play is just done with English and done with the white man. I know it's not that's not what it's supposed to be about I mean it's it's tricky it's it's um it's complicated because the whole play was always about supposed to be about deconstructing binaries and there was a million different drafts where it was clear in the last section that I still work with. I mean, I'm I'm joining the faculty at ASU in the fall as part of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, you know, so it's not like I am done with Shakespeare. It's tricky, right? Because within a narrative, you have to make choices about what's important. And ultimately, the epilogue is about our COVID moment. It will change again when there's a different moment that we're in. But it was never supposed to be like neat. It was never supposed to be like, this or that. My my concern with the play is it feels a little more this or that than it used to in a way that isn't, isn't, I don't think, helpful to deconstructing the binaries that the play is supposed to deconstruct. But we'll see what happens. I also think it's different in performance for that reason, because there's a lot more heart in it and a lot more vulnerability. But I mean, no, I'm not done with Shakespeare. I just, I don't think he's the most important thing he's taking up too much space and that other things also need to have equal space so that um, we can actually have conversations about what it means to be human and not look for this, you know, one white playwright from the early modern period to define what it is to be human when in fact he does not know what it means to be Mohegan. He does not know what it means to be all of these other things. And I think that um, that's really important. Hmm. And when you say he's taking up too much space, I don't mean to take it literally, but literally in terms of, you know, academia, in terms of, of yeah. curriculum, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, he, he you know, he's he's super funded. Um, and that's not an accident that, that he's the most funded playwright. He's the most produced playwright in America. He is the thing required in the Common Core. He is treated as if he is a god instead of a playwright. And in that act of treating him as a god instead of a playwright, we compare everything to him. And in comparing everything to him, we create a system that is intrinsically white supremacist because we are saying that him and his world and his values are the best possible thing and the English language is the best possible thing. And that if you're going to be a playwright, you need to be more like him. Um, And that is not only incorrect, it's harmful because it, it actually reduces the amount of other possibilities that can exist. It reduces what people are creatively inspired by. It reduces who as a teenager reads a play and thinks theater is for them. Um, It reduces all of those possibilities. And so, yes, while I have a relationship to Shakespeare and I continue to direct Shakespeare, 
Um, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and that is to say that that epilogue might disappear and go away and something else might go there instead. Um, because it, it traditionally, well, I don't want to give away too much, but it traditionally ended with something else. And um, I was always caught between. It was never meant to be solved. I was never meant to stop being a bird. Yeah, so it's very complicated. It's very complicated. But no, I have not, I have not given up Shakespeare. I just, you know, don't center him in my life as much. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Madeline Syatt's new play, Where We Belong, is being presented by Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company in association with The Folger. It begins streaming June 14th and runs until July 11th. You can buy a ticket at woollymammoth.net under Current Season. That's woollymammoth.net and click on Current Season. Our podcast, Farewell Master, Farewell, Farewell, was produced by Richard Paul. Carlin Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. And we had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.